I have heard local and national newscasters say the following about today's information age. We live in an era where we want to have our information right here and right now. Okay, I'm paraphrasing. Well, we're going to have that, but for tonight, as I promised you, there's a couple of the parks I want to talk with you about. One of them, I learned some history about that kind of surprised me the way this happened. The other, something that was done wrong years ago, had finally been done right just in time for the 50th anniversary of a park here in this area. We're going to talk tonight about a park in Nashville, Tennessee, which doesn't exist anymore, and about a ride returning to a park which has existed for 50 years. This is the story of Opryland and Worlds of Fun. The first segment will be about Opryland, and we'll start that on the other side of this break. For 74 years, X has marked the spot in Riverside for groceries, cigarettes, beer and spirits, and a lot of other household needs. Beginning February 22nd, X is going to mark a spot very close by. It will be a brand new store. It is still going to be Riverside Red X. The location is in the same area. It's just going to be a different store. We are excited about it, and I hope you are too. February 22nd, once again, will be the date that this store opens up. The new place where X marks the spot. Your local Riverside Red X. As you listen to Roy Acuff sing this song... There are some key words I'd like to have you listen for, and they're going to be not sung but spoken at the very end. You'll understand why when we get to the end of this song. Here's Roy with the Smoky Mountain Boys, his signature song, The Wabash Cannonball. Jim at the cannonball. You have 
If you were listening close, <clears throat> the key words were Opryland USA. And for a very long time, this was, to me, a music legend. When you consider the fact that it was located very definitely in the middle of what I'd like to call Nashville being Music City USA... you would obviously hear a lot of music in the park. Nashville was home to an iconic theme park like no other in the country. And this, this article, by the way, is from NashvilleScene.com. Let's go ahead and get into it. It was published by the World's a Fun website on New Year's Eve. Give it a second to load up and I'll take you through what exactly happened here. The sub-headline <clears throat> says that looking back at the Rush 1997 closure of Opryland USA, Nashville was home to, icon to an iconic theme park like no other in the country. Then it was shuttered for no compelling reason. They had no reason to shut it down. Well, here we go. We'll get into what in the world happened here. In the decades since the New York Times christened Nashville as the nation's it city, there has been no shortage of profiles and travel pieces about our town. There have been drop-ins from coastal publications and television programs all clamoring for a look at a city that has seen enormous growth in the 21st century. But this story isn't about that Nashville. This is a story about the Nashville of the late 1990s, before the internet, before 9-11, before the Bachelorettes descended on Lower Broadway and Nashville found itself a tourist destination for live music and partying. Back then, the biggest tourist attraction in the area 
was a music-centric theme park called Opryland USA. I had learned also, and I'm saying this away from the article, Roy Acuff was among the board of directors. I think I heard somebody say that he was. Anyway, opened in 1972, two years before the Grand Ole Opry moved over there, Opryland was a popular destination that featured roller coasters and other rides, along with a plethora of live shows that highlighted Nashville's unique performing arts talent. For a time, the park accompanied both the Grand Ole Opry House, home of Nashville's iconic Grand Ole Opry radio program since 1974, and the Opryland Hotel, an architectural marvel featuring an indoor jungle and a river flowing through it. <clears throat> If you find a Nashville native and ask one of us about Opryland, you'll probably hear us wax poetic with nostalgia for a park that now lives only in our collective memory. What few seem to remember is the clumsy nature of its rush closure by ownership group Gaylord Entertainment 25 years ago this month. This is a story of a bad and very unpopular business decision. Old newspaper reporting and Gaylord's financial filings reinforced current company executives call that the decision was a mistake. This is the story of how a beloved local landmark was sold out from under the city that made it. Opryland USA opened just eight months after Disney World. It continuously added attractions and rides for the next three decades. And for every year it was open except one, it was Nashville's top tourist attraction. It had an average of 2 million visitors a year and employed approximately 2,500 people per season, many of them foreign exchange students and high school students. It was a huge source of job training and career prep for local teenagers. Opryland put Nashville on the map, says Butch Spyridon who had served as the head of Nashville's Convention and Visitors Corporation since 1991. With conventions, bus tours, and family vacations, they built all of it in the very beginning. They had a rightful seat at the table, and Nashville was doing pretty good at that particular point in time. But everything happened out there off Briley. Our whole industry was on that campus. By 1995, Opryland Ownership Group Gaylord Entertainment, Amusement Park Trade Press, and others were positively glowing about the park's success and profitability. <clears throat> the saying officials at the Opryland theme park are delighted with how the park has developed over the years would probably be an understatement, reported the Nashville Banner in 1995. Opryland had an incredible lineup of unique roller coasters and other rides. There was the Screamin' Delta Demon, a bobsled coaster that was the only one of its kind. Chaos was a psychedelic indoor roller coaster that involved a spectacular light show and clever design. It has a twin, a ride called Revolution, at Belgian theme park Bobblegen Land which are still in operation and experimenting with modern techno technological in innovations like virtual reality headsets worn while on the ride. Then there was the water rides. The Grizzly River Rampage was a whitewater rafting ride realistic enough that it was used as the course 
for qualifying rounds ahead of the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta. There was the Hangman, a huge inverted steel coaster that launched in 1995 and cost Gaylord $8.5 to build. When it opened, its first ride was broadcast on morning TV. I remember stuffing my shoes with extra socks so I would appear tall enough to ride it. But I was tall enough only once, the last time I went to Opryland in the summer of 1997 when I was nine. Hangman was open for only two summers at the park. The railroad that looped around the park <clears throat> had beautifully restored antique locomotives that carried people through Opryland's patches of trees. Two formerly coal-burning engines, restored and converted to burn fuel fuel oil, were so beloved that they had names, Beatrice and Rachel. It was all brought together by an antique carousel that was hand-carved in Germany, the centerpiece for Opryland's suite of kids' rides. But what really made Opryland special was its unwavering dedication to music. The theme park featured several daily shows and hosted frequent concerts, all featuring members of Nashville's incredible and growing cast of local musicians. Occasionally, a country music star would make a cameo. Legend Roy Acuff was on frequent celebrity sighting. Park patrons would often find him sitting on a park bench signing autographs. The Grand Ole Opry House, which was completed in 1974 and is to this day the home of the Grand Ole Opry, was adjacent to the park. In 1996, Opryland was the top tourist attraction in Nashville. According to Spy Ridden, the park was the catalyst that launched Nashville's growth as a big city. Prior to the park, the only reason to come to Nashville was to go to the Grand Ole Opry, he told the Nashville Banner at the time. What the park began to do was create a destination attraction that we needed. Which is why the park's closure came as such a shock. On December 31, 1997, Opryland closed its doors forever. It was ultimately raised by Gaylord Entertainment and turned into the multi-million dollar Opry Mills shopping mall, a gargantuan shrine to capitalism. My family had been Opryland season ticket holders and we went to the park after church multiple times a month for most of my early childhood. I had just turned 10 when Opryland closed. Its closure was my first broken heart. Gaylord executives say Opryland was profitable up until the end. The deal happened so fast, it gave the community whiplash. In late August 1997, at the end of the summer season, Gaylord executives were denying a rumor that had caught fire among park staff and visitors. That's a ridiculous idea, Gaylord Vice President Alan Hall told the Nashville Banner on August 30th, 1997. We're not going to level the park. Maybe not so ridiculous. On Halloween 1997, news broke to the Nashville community that Opryland had only two months left to live. Gaylord partnered with the Mills Corporation on the build of the new property. Details of the deal between Gaylord and Mills are sparse in public documents, but Mills invested more than $225 million in capital to build Opry Mills and Gaylord maintained a 33% ownership stake in the new venture. The Opryland Hotel and the Grand Ole Opry House 
would be unaffected by the deal, and the new complex would be built around them. It would have an IMAX theater, a bowling alley, an ice skating rink, and more than a million feet of retail space. Translation, another King Louis West. Reports this week ferreted out news that the 25-year-old Opryland theme park, once the brightest star in the Gaylord constellation, is being converted into a retail shopping and entertainment complex that will include specialty stores, live music, amusement rides, perhaps movie screens, and skating rinks, reported the Nashville Banner on October 31, 1997. It's a $225 million investment in the belief that a fresh approach can tap a massive new customer base. Good grief. Further details are scheduled to be made public Thursday, mo- Tuesday morning at a function at the Grand Ole Opry House, an appropriate forum for the announcement. The reasons given at the time seemed reasonable enough, even though there wasn't a lot of strategy or analysis to back, up, back them up. Attendance at Opryland USA declined slightly in 1997, which was partially due to an uptick in visitation for the 96th season, the park's 25th year. The park didn't have near, nearby land available for expansion, and it sat unopened during the winter months. A mall would be more valuable year-round. The real dilemma was that theme parks have to add something significant every three to five years, says Spyridden. Opryland wasn't losing money, but it wasn't growing revenue. It was very static, and Gaylord knew that they would have to commit a capital investment every three to five years to keep it up to date. Roller coasters are 10 to $20 million investments. This was, of course, before the e-commerce boom, and Gaylord executives, without proper due diligence, decided a giant shopping mall would be more lucrative than a long-time theme park. At It should also be noted that the plan was to build this mega mall in a known flood zone, something that would come back to haunt it a little more than a decade later. The public was shocked, said Spyridden. The sentiment was absolutely, don't take our park away. But the decision was done, and obviously Gaylord is a private company. The political conversation was similar. We don't want to lose the park. I think Gaylord tried to soften the news by saying they were going to develop this mall and it was going to have park elements. They did a pretty good job of convincing people that there would be theme park type elements that didn't come to fruition. Spyridden says initial drafts of Opry Mills seemed inspired by the Mall of America in Minnesota. I looked at massive renderings that showed rides in parking lots and rides in the mall, but the idea was never fully baked. Baked. Within two weeks of the closure announcement, a chorus of outraged Nashvillians called for the city to purchase and save the park, prompting Mayor Phil Bredesen's office to issue a statement that read like a death notice. To preserve the park in its current form seems to be virtually impossible, Gaylord Vice President Hall told the Nashville Banner that no, there was no way they would donate any of the rides to the city. No amount of crying from residents or politicians would change that. Within three weeks of announcing it would close, Opryland had sold most of its major rides to Premier Parks, the Oklahoma City-based company that operates Six Flags for around $10 million.
A few of them must be re would be repurposed as other rides in other theme parks across the around the country. Hangman was repurposed and is now a ride called Kong at Six Flags Discovery Kingdom in California. Most of the roller coasters, including the Screamin' Delta Demon and Chaos, were left to languish in an overgrown field in Indiana before being sold for scrap metal. In later SEC filings, Gaylord reported costs of $40.2 million related to the closing of the park, including costs to scrap the rides. Ladies and the, the rush closure of Opryland had a significant impact on both the local economy and the future of tourism in Nashville. The park was Nashville's top tourist attraction for the 26 years it was in operation, and its closure led to a decline in tourism to Nashville for the rest of the 1990s. The tourism industry in Nashville was nowhere near what it, what it has grown to now, and after the park shuttered, it went into panic mode. It was, what are we going to do? We're dead, says Spy Ridden. We were probably lost about 40% of our summer business, and it took us down over the course of a year. We were down about 20% overall in terms of lost business, which was, fortunately, be because the convention business was good. It took a giant chunk out of summer and forced us to regroup. NCBC put together a campaign called Strength in Numbers, which raised $1.5 million to launch a rebranded marketing effort to position Nashville as a year-round destination. We didn't have the luxury of lamenting the loss. We had to take the cards we were handed and turn it into something. So we tried to focus on digging our way out. It took us three years to get back to 1998 numbers. Then 9-11 happened, and it took us another three years. I remember talking to the downtown bars, and there weren't many then, and... And I said we have to look at downtown as a museum by day and a theme park by night. We had to use our history and legacy and tell Nashville's story differently to overcome the impact of the Opryland decision. But Nashville is a stronger, better, bigger destination today. It forced us to become a citywide destination instead of an Opryland destination. The community fretted over the loss of the park, not to mention the rush manner of its closure which left no time for locals to provide input or react to the loss of such a large economic driver and local employer. City officials decreed the fact that the emotional attachment of the community to Opryland was not weighed heavily enough in Gaylord's decision. You dang right. We've been very happy with the children working in Opryland, a local parent told the Nashville Banner after the closure. It was a safe environment, and the people that worked with, they worked with and for, and for, were really good. I never worried about them walking to their cars. There was just something really special about Opryland. I couldn't put my finger on it. They were outside a lot. They were outside when they couldn't be constantly thinking about what they could spend their money on. A scathing letter to the editor ran in the Nashville Banner in January 1998, ripping Gaylord for placing profits ahead of pleasing the public and being political. But anyway, as I come home to Nashville on holiday from Memphis, it comes as no surprise to me that the Opryland Show Park is closing down, the letter read. Gaylord Entertainment Company has no desire to touch us citizens in a way that will have a positive, everlasting impression on our lives. 
It has one interest, money, profit. A few years later, buried at the bottom of a 2004 Tennessean article, Gaylord executives admitted that the decision to close the park had been made without due diligence. Too late now, ding-dongs. That no strategic analysis or business planning had actually taken place. As reported by Barron's in 2000, the country music business was flat as a raccoon in the middle of a highway, and Gaylord's low stock price at the time reflected the slump in the slump in country. Current Gaylord Entertainment Company executives say they found no evidence that former decision makers ever had a business plan. You know something, I'm going to stop this. Just a second. They mentioned, okay, they're going into the shopping mall that opened after Opryland had closed. This is a move, ladies and gentlemen, that was a very dumb move to make. You did not, they did not help matters at all. Opryland USA is gone, but Opryland is actually still here. It's the people, it's you, you are Opryland and don't forget about it. I like to imagine what Opryland might be like today. I imagine the park is leaning heavily into the tourism renaissance that Nashville has seen over the past decade, growing as much as the honky-tonks of Lower Broad. I like to imagine the park as a linchpin in a more family-friendly Nashville tourism experience. Similar to how Dollywood has evolved in East Tennessee, Opryland could have been a huge driver of economic development here in Nashville. I imagine Opryland as a place constantly evolving in its dedication to art. I imagine riding chaos and experiencing a custom laser light show with a soundtrack created by locals. I imagine pop-up concerts by country stars at one of the Opryland's pavilions. Instead, we got them all. They paved paradise and put up a parking lot. Another matter, my friends, of, of people wanting the big buck more than they wanted people around. Customer base, they didn't really pay as much attention as they should to their customer base. That was a big mistake, my friends, losing Opryland. But apparently, country music is still growing. How they imagine all of this, I do not know. And at this point, it's kind of hard to care anyway, because Gaylord Entertainment really didn't care at the time. They approached it the same way as people approached putting a Martin Luther King Street on the Paseo. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll talk about that a little bit later on here on here on the podcast. But up next, there was a movie, there was a excuse me, there was a roller coaster returning to Kansas City. And I could not be happier about it. There's a lot of people I know that would be too. And it couldn't have been for a more special occasion than this one. 
We're going to go close to home and pay a visit to Worlds of Fun on the other side of this break. For those of you who like a good cookie, may I suggest a place to you? This is Terry Runyon from the New Directions Podcast, here to talk about the Crumble Cookie Company. Located in North Kansas City, they make several different kinds of cookies each and every day, and they sell them in different packs also. I had a chance recently to try a chocolate chip cookie from there. Oh my gosh, it was so, so good. Next time you're in the area, I invite you to stop by the Crumble Cookie Company. Try one of them out for yourself. Buy a few packs for your friends, buy them for Christmas gifts, however you want to do it. These could be some of the best cookies you have ever had. You might even if you so chose, wanted to bring some milk along. The Crumble Cookie Company. Very, very good stuff. Like Opryland in 1997, Worlds of Fun made a few mistakes of their own. A lot of the a lot of the rides that they had ended up going elsewhere. They were trying, I guess, to build the park up. I have no idea why. But anyway, one of the mistakes that they had made at that time was losing what had been a fixture there since the park opened way back in 1973 the Zambezi Zinger. Late last year, though, news was released from the Worlds of Fun Worlds of Fun folks that the Zambezi Zinger is going to be rebuilt. And it's going to be rebuilt just in time for their 50th anniversary year. There has been a Facebook page developed where you could follow the build. I found a few things to share with you. There is a Titan track that's being used on the lift hill. They're showing pictures of those that used to ride the Zambezi. Yes, I did ride it too. My brother did, my mother did, and father I know did as well. They're showing some other pictures. Um, Friends and family came from Lincoln, Nebraska. And there was a picture, I guess, that was taken during the original Zambezi climb. Now we will move on. The original Zambezi... There has been a live blog established, and I'll have a commercial set up. As a matter of fact, at the end of this segment, 
that if you wanted to follow the build, you can get onto this blog. I'll get information here in a second. Here we go. This is Worlds of Fun Park News. This has been published to their, to their blog, in fact. This is a Zambezi Zinger Construction Live blog. August 11th of last year, Worlds of Fun and Cedar Fair announced a reimagined Zambezi Zinger roller coaster with one-of-a-kind Titan Track Lift Hill, Great Coasters International Track, and Infinity Flyer Trains from Skyline Attractions. The project is slated to open for the 50th anniversary season in 2023. The Zambezi Zinger sign placed on the original ZZ... ZZQ house, I guess, which will be utilized when the ride opens. Pictures are set up on this, and my friends, I could not be happier. I could not be happier at all. This looks real good, and it's going to be it's going to be a very, very fun Zambezi Zinger. We'll take a, we will be, I'll be following it for you as we follow the blog over the next probably two or three months or so. It's sounding good and I'm loving the fact that they're bringing it back. There was a very, very serious wrong done in 1997 when that ride was gone. It was moved. When it was taken away. It was moved, I think, overseas. I'm still trying to find other information about it. But. Come on, April. Let's bring this thing on. They wonder on one of the roller, co roller coasters page entries. Wonder if they'll auction off seats for the first ride as they did with Prowler. <laughs> Why? I would rather ride it. And I think this is going to be real nice. I want to add one more quick thing to you. Hopefully I can get back on the page that has this. We'll see here in a second one. This will be something that I give a little bit of detail on as we go. And I think they're aiming to open... This particular ride next, I'm sorry, this particular park next year in Osage Beach. They're building, they're, plans are being made to build a water park in Osage Beach. In the Lake of the Ozarks area, of course. As, de as further details are released, I will be more than happy to share them with you. But for now... Let's just say this, 97 was the year that really shouldn't have happened. Nashville had an opportunity to right or wrong. They did not do it. Kansas City's doing just that this year, and I couldn't be happier. This is RKC, my friends, and I'm looking forward to riding the Zambezi Zinger when it gets up and going this coming year we will wrap up this podcast and look ahead to the next one right after this
Worlds of Fun is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. And along with that, there's a special surprise. This is Terry Runyon from the podcast, here to tell you about a ride that is not new, but is returning this year. And that's the Zambezi Zinger. You can follow the build on a blog on Facebook. You can read all about it on the Worlds of Fun Facebook page. You can go to the Worlds of Fun website and get information from there. We are all over the build for this, this returning ride. And, hope, and I hope that we'll all be ready to really ride this when the park opens for this year. The return of the Zambezi Zinger. I couldn't be happier. And I think everybody is going to have a whole lot of fun when this happens. Looking ahead to next time here on the New Directions podcast, I'm going to learn a little bit of Paseo history. You follow the story, I'm pretty sure, of people standing up for keeping their, keeping their street the way it is instead of getting railroaded into renaming it for Dr. Martin Luther King. But while I'm learning that, I thought it would also be appropriate, given the fact that this week will be during Martin Luther King's birthday, to relive his words from his march in Washington, especially the ones that say, I have a dream. And maybe share a little bit about dreams as we go along. We will see what happens, but the main subjects, the Paseo and Dr. King. Next week here on the New Directions podcast. As far as final thoughts are concerned, the legendary Morgan Freeman has some to share with us. He said, you learn nothing from life if you think you're right all the time. On that note, that's going to wind things up for this edition of the New Directions podcast. Thank you for being with me as always. We will see you next time. And until then, to get us out of here, Another song that I used to love to listen to from the Grand Ole Opry. Porter Wagoner with the highway headed south. Yeah.